0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Thanks for joining us today. Well, today our show title is called Adaptive Reuse Opportunities. Look, functional obsolescence and demographic changes will impact most all types of commercial real estate at some point in time. These properties can create both challenges and opportunities. For example, what do you do with a failing mall, right, that's sitting there with, with no tenants or very few tenants? Or maybe an industrial building where the ceilings are very low? Well, today we'll share some ideas and some lessons learned in some of the successful adaptive reuse projects around the country please welcome my first guest, Jackie Boone, principal and CEO of Athenian Erasic, a development project management and consulting firm based in Philadelphia. She holds the CRE designation and she's also an architect. Jackie, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we appreciate uh, you joining us on the phone today, and let's talk about some of the more interesting adaptive reuse projects you've been involved with. Tell us about the Navy Yard Project uh, for Penn State. Now, there you're converting warehouse to classroom, right?
1: Yes, uh, I'd love to talk about that one. We're just uh, getting started on our end of the project. turns uh, out this was actually an old Navy gym, uh, swimming pool, and basketball courts that and some offices, uh, then became a warehouse, and now uh, is being used by Penn State for a demonstration uh, energy efficiency project. Um, So it's uh, a very exciting project, um, and supported by Penn State. It'll have four different um, HVAC systems in it just to test out which ones work the best, and we will be uh, working with them to test it.
0: Oh, Excellent. So what uh, was the age of this building?
1: Uh this one I think is from the 40s not that old um uh, as are and there's a lot of properties in the navy yard we've worked on several we did a sound stage out of one old warehouse for um film and uh, offices uh for uh, eventually urban outfitters in another um warehouse building um so there's a lot of variety down there they're also doing new construction and uh this one is not meant to be Uh, commercially successful because it has an institutional tenant, but they are trying out a series of energy systems for retrofit buildings that are aimed at being commercially uh, usable easily.
0: Right, and that's important. And you've also transformed uh, industrial buildings uh, to office space, right? Oh, of course. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) I think uh, all of us have done that. we, uh, one of the uh, repeating themes there was uh, printing press buildings. We've done three of those to either office or data center, uh, two here in Philly, including the old um, uh, TV Guide building, and uh, worked in, in Chicago in the old Yellow Pages building on CERMAC.
0: You know, and if you're listening uh, and you're online, uh, of course, not if you're driving, right, but if you're online, you can catch these at their website, which is athenianrazic.com. and uh, you can see uh, images and the description of these projects. And uh, tell us, you know, what did you learn from in doing these industrial buildings and, and convert them to office ha- uh, uses and, and other uses?
1: Well, one of the things that came up in the process of a couple of them, uh, mm-hmm. there's the, department, the old Gimbel's department store building where we have our offices now, mm-hmm. which is now owned by uh, Digital Realty. Uh, we learned that some of these properties have very heavy floor loading, uh, particularly the printing press and department store buildings, and high uh, ceiling space, which means they are readily adapted to data centers. So we... Uh, essentially taught ourselves uh, all about data centers as we grew in the industry and have uh, put data centers in a few of these properties. That, uh, that's a tricky business but can work well. Um, other things we've learned that are important is uh, avoid falling in love with the building. You can <laughs> always spend more than you want to.
0: And some of these buildings are uh, strikingly uh, interesting and, uh, and uh, architecturally, aren't they?
1: Yes, I, I I don't follow my own advice there very well.
0: <laughs> and uh, what is it about industrial buildings that works well for data centers, and, and maybe what what is challenging about them?
1: Well, uh, data centers need a few uh, qualities. They need uh, heavy electric and uh, as much you know fiber availability as possible. And then they need outdoor space and the ability to uh, move electric and and fiber and oil around in the building. So half of that um, points you to a, a Greenfield suburban site, and the other half points you to a downtown dense site. Um, so they can succeed meter location. Uh, if you're doing uh, converted buildings uh, in a downtown, department stores, Printing presses, warehouses often have the kind of floor loading you need for a data center and the kind of clear ceiling. Uh, department stores have a lot of vertical shafts you can use to go through the building, so that's useful. Um, so, some uh, buildings we worked on in New York were uh, it was an old tank manufacturer, I think, or bus manufacturer. So that's the uh, biggest data center property in New York at 111-8th.
0: Okay, we're talking with Jackie Boone about adaptive reuse and, and uh, data centers around the country. Do you expect the demand to, to continue to increase uh, with everyone going to the cloud? Well,
1: there will be more data center, but I think it will probably wind up being controlled by specialist companies rather mm-hmm. than you know companies building their own as they have in the past. Mm-hmm. So that, that market's changing um, rapidly. Mm -hmm. And there's some uh, energy efficiencies that are changing the market rapidly.
0: Okay. And what about some retail properties, Jackie? Maybe some uh, big box retail or some some malls that uh, just aren't uh, really really working anymore. What have you done there?
1: Well, we've worked, uh, we've consulted on a few and uh, worked directly on uh, at least one. Um, there have uh, been a number of efforts to convert old malls to data center use. Um, it's not necessarily successful. Again, there there will be the floor loading and the access there, but there's a lot of other uh, qualities needed and the demand for data center is limited. So it's it's not a slam dunk conversion, but it uh, can be done uh I've also uh learned uh, that uh, a lot of our modern retail structures are not built to last so uh <laughs> they have <clears throat> they have issues uh um in regard to reuse that way
0: right that's a good point so uh they didn't build those to last 200 years right
1: yeah and i think people are seeing uh, school library conversions on malls which is certainly a matter of interest because mm-hmm. they they have parking there's a lot of different things that are being tried out we've seen uh, relative success with uh, call centers because um, they have the the wide open floors that you mm-hmm. can uh, use to put a lot of people in.
0: Yeah, yep, that's a great use. Schools and call centers. And now tell us about your uh, office space in uh, Camden, New Jersey.
1: <laughs> we're uh we're just getting involved with a warehouse there which is a uh, gorgeous building uh, of course I'm not in love <laughs>
2: um
1: <laughs> I think you and are and <laughs> it's uh, a a beautiful uh you know 50,000 square foot warehouse wide open and we're looking at putting spec office in there um the uh reason for that is um is a uh, tax credit driven uh there are some uh, uh, very um beneficial credits available in Camden specifically to try to get the uh, city uh, rebuilt and to enliven the downtown and uh, I think um, rule of thumb in markets that are not booming like New York or San Francisco is you're looking for at least two tax credits on renovation which is unfortunate we'd all like to be doing this um, on an economic basis but I think it does take some support in most markets
0: and is that a part of what you guys do as consultants, uh, is help them find these uh, local and, and uh, other tax credits?
1: Yes, sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a series that people uh, normally use, for instance, the historic tax credits, the mm-hmm. uh, low-income uh, tax credits for housing, and then some special things, as I'm describing in Camden.
0: Right. All right. And what would be a closing tip for our listeners uh, regarding what you've learned about adaptive reuse, Jackie?
1: Oh gosh, I think I used up all my tips. So I look for two tax credits. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the tax credits, you said. Uh, what? Don't fall in love with the building. Yep. Uh, and on retail, I realize that may not have been built to last, right?
1: Yeah. Those. Uh, you, you want something that doesn't need great structure for
0: that. <laughs> and and how about a quick tip on cost? How do you know what this stuff's going to cost? It's hard to to know, isn't it? Yeah, you might want to
1: triple your first uh, (laughs) first testament. It it always costs more than you think, uh, you know, and you get better at it.
0: Yeah, that's Um, true. Well, Jackie, thanks for
1: you know you can limit your spending by by planning carefully. Well, Jackie, thanks for joining us today.
0: We appreciate you being on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, stay with us. We'll have more on adaptive reuse opportunities in just a moment. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about adaptive reuse projects, and please welcome my next guest, is Bruce McAvoy. He is a design principal with Perkins and Will. Bruce, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Michael, pleasure to be here.
0: And Bruce, I'd like to talk about some of the projects Projects you've been involved with, and then after that, talk about some lessons learned and maybe some tips for our listeners and viewers. And if you will, start us off and tell us a little bit about the MODA project in Atlanta.
2: Sure. Uh, MODA stands for actually the Museum of Design Atlanta. Um, It's a small museum directly across from the High Museum. Uh, It's about 12,000 square feet, and it actually used to be a parking deck.
0: A parking deck.
2: Yeah. (laughs) It was pretty interesting. Um, We were repurposing that building and trying to. create some uh, a relevant uh, piece of architecture for the city again. It was a 1986 building, um, had a very strange configuration where there was a horseshoe-shaped driveway right off of uh, Peachtree Street, and you drove directly into the building uh, for on-street parking, basically. It was a whole, uh, whole level of a deck, two levels below that. And when we did the project, we thought there's a much better urban solution, especially how Midtown has grown since uh, the mid-'80s. And what we did was we created a plaza there and then wanted a um, basically a retail tenant or a, a cultural tenant. If it could be associated with design, great. And Moda um, was actually downtown in Marquee 2. It actually uh, just celebrated its 25th uh, anniversary. It was originally in one of John Portman's model rooms. He uh, was instrumental in starting it back then. It was actually called the International. Um, and they had always dreamed about having a storefront and being in the cultural corridor of Atlanta, which is kind of... Uh, right by the high in Midtown there and given the opportunity they jumped at it.
0: Well that's interesting so they probably liked the idea of being in an adaptive reuse kind of a project didn't they?
2: Yeah yeah it was um, it really fit sort of uh, the mantra and the and sort of the spirit of what they were doing as a museum and sort of the tenements that they have about sort of looking at the value of design and how powerful it is when you think about this sort of intersection between creativity and functionality
0: and my listeners and viewers they have to be wondering at this point How in the heck you take a (laughs) parking garage and make it you know nice space like that
2: well um it was interesting um we had been doing some studies uh for a new home for moda had looked at some of the programming and understood basically everything that they didn't have became the wish list of what they what they wanted so um when when the 1315 was being redeveloped on Peachtree, um, that space was kind of leftover space underneath the building. Um, so we basically enclosed it with a, a curtain wall system on the east and the west side. Uh, the north side was partially enclosed um, and just had a rail uh, for the parking. So we put some storefront there as well. And then the southern, uh, the southern half of the building was basically taken up by another tenant. So um, once we had the shell then that's, that's all we needed. Then the, the real challenge began about, again, like you said, how do you take what was a, a parking deck and turn it into a museum? So,
0: Yeah, I was in a bar uh, one time in a building I sold that was not parking deck uh, below a building, and they took this, uh, and this was in Midtown too, over Crescent Avenue in Atlanta, and they transformed it into a club, and it was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, thinking taking dark, dank basement space that really wasn't being used for much at all at the time, and and creating uh, great space. Well, what are some of the the challenges that you faced to doing well, that?
2: Well, with that project, there was um there was a question of sort of the height, the actual section of the building. Uh, for a museum, you want to have um, as much height as you can get. The more height, the more flexibility you've got. And typically, your ceiling's going to carry all the infrastructure. You know, the environmental systems, uh, lights, uh, track lighting, all the things you're going to need for a museum. One thing we had to do um, as well was a structural adaptation of the building. You'd think, okay, if we can park cars there, certainly we can have some people mingle around and and look at design. But it turns out the live load of that assembly was greater than a parking deck, so we actually had to improve on the structure, sister some beams in a couple of areas um, underneath the museum to actually upgrade the structure. Once we did that, then the real, the next challenge was sort of how to preserve that height. So, um, I think when you get into these projects, just kind of uh, coming at it with a fresh pair of eyes and and not being afraid to be creative. So what we did in this case was, we did a horizontal chase, meaning between the one tenant that was existing and Moda, we created basically a small uh, run that we could run all the duct work and service for the building, um, basically through the space horizontally, as opposed to what you would traditionally do, putting it in the ceiling. Um, by not putting it in the ceiling and just getting the services up and over the, the ceiling, we could compress that that section we needed above the ceiling to about a foot. So gave us a great sort of 13-foot gallery height as opposed to, you know, if we did it the traditional way, we'd be lucky to probably get 10.
0: And then you had good ceiling height to start with. I know some parking decks, uh, aren't the ceilings aren't that high. No,
2: no. You can and jump I think, up and
0: down and hit your head.
2: Yeah, I think we um, we benefited a little bit from uh, this was probably back then uh, the part of the deck they were considering to be uh, for handicap, So we had a fourteen-six floor floor-to-floor which was like you said generous.
0: Well tell us about uh, zoning and permitting for a project like that and uh, were there some challenges there or was that easy to do?
2: Um, with that specific project we had a lot of help from Midtown Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know Midtown's in an overlay district and um, I think as long as um, you can develop trust with the local building authority or wherever you're working, and they see the value in you upgrading a project or upgrading the infrastructure within the, the, the urban fabric, you're actually gonna get a lot of support, um, and we did. I think the only time we had some issues was really outside the walls of Moda when we were trying to do some sustainable features with the project that um, that Midtown just didn't recognize yet. We were trying to do some bioswales and some things to, to help with the uh, stormwater issues here in Atlanta, but uh, we were probably being a little too progressive for where the city was at that point, but that was really the only pushback we got.
0: Interesting. Well, let's talk about estimating your costs. I mean, I guess you're just gonna look in a book and say, hey, what's it cost to <laughs> take a parking deck <laughs> yeah. to a studio or to
2: Yeah. Um, it really in this case it was great because there wasn't a lot of deconstruction which is something you need to watch out for in these projects when you get into kind of dismantling the building you never quite know what you're going to find in there um in this case since it was a deck it was pretty bare bones to begin with so it was it was pretty much in a um an additive process um as we went through to create the 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 project but I think in other projects, um, it is, it's difficult. Um, you can do some due diligence in the beginning. Uh, a lot of times you'll um, get access to the project. You can try and get into the, get into the ceiling spaces, some other things. Um, you really just need to watch out for um, all those things you don't know, you know, and also some of the materials that might be in the original building. No, yeah. you, nobody wants to hear the word abatement
0: right. when you're
2: doing one of these projects.
0: <laughs> right, and the unknowns can be scary. So yeah. uh, you may have some percentage of your cost for for those unknowns in a new construction project, but uh, what might you increase that to in a, an adaptive reuse?
2: Yeah, well, I think um, the way that uh, financially, just in general, when we'll talk about an adaptive reuse project, we kind of like to think of it as, okay, if you were doing a new project, um, you know, it's, it's coming forward, what are you saving by doing this adaptive reuse? So a lot of times you're gonna, there's a lot of embodied energy and a lot of embodied cost mm-hmm. in say, the structural system that you're gonna get just basically right out of the gate, mm-hmm. um, as long as it works for you. Sometimes building systems are there that can be um, partially salvaged or partially used. Um, sometimes they've, they've just been added for some reason and somebody, you know, a tenant ducked out or something, so. Yeah,
0: yeah adaptive reuse can be a great Uh, way to to salvage a building and salvage some value I mean we sold a a hotel that had become defunct and uh, functionally obsolete and we sold that uh, in downtown Atlanta to someone who did student housing Mm -hmm. And like you said they were able to use the structure and uh, save quite a bit of money
2: yeah
0: and uh, and then maybe they have a more interesting project at the end of the day
2: absolutely and when you look at it that way you kinda came out ahead yeah Mm -hmm. I'm sure they they probably encountered some strange things or anomalies Mm -hmm. but Man, getting a structural frame up and having basically the project halfway there, that's nice bottom line. Probably. Yeah,
0: it is. We'll I'll take a short break. Here will be more on adaptive reuses. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career.
2: Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's fiuonline dot com.
0: Welcome back, I'm Michael Bull and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today we're talking about adaptive reuse projects and and sharing some ideas and some lessons learned in projects around the world. My guest is Bruce McAvoy with Perkins & Will. And Bruce, have you been involved in some projects that we're taking industrial buildings that maybe aren't uh, the best use anymore and adaptive reuse on those projects?
2: Yes. Um, there's a couple of projects, a couple of examples. Um, the first, uh, is actually an international project mm-hmm. we're working on right now called Udicule. Mm-hmm. It's, um, in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, it's on the West side of the golden horn. And, um, it was, it's kind of an amazing project that started off as just an urban design. We were helping a, a firm over there, take a look at it, turned into a project. And it's interesting in the sense that, um, you know, Istanbul has been continuously inhabited since, like, Constantine, so you have this incredible layering of history and different uses over time. Um, this project in particular, they want to do a mixed-use project, and it's at the intersection of uh, Yudikula Castle, this ancient land wall that basically uh, bounds the, the golden horn from the castle, a seawall that's also dates back to probably Constantine, <laughs> And then um, the uh, termination of the European rail line, where it hit the Turkish rail line, um, and all these train buildings that were built probably around 1910, 1914, that were uh, finally abandoned probably around in the 50s. Um, And the site's kind of gone derelict, but they want to do something with it. So it's very. um I can't remember the exact size of the site the overall program when we're done with the mixed use is going to be around 480,000 square feet Um, and that's split above ground and below ground Um, but it's it's kind of crazy that you have this intersection of new development these old industrial buildings ancient ruins and the idea that all of this is going to layer up as a partnership basically with the local government in Istanbul as a um, as a historic preservation slash repurpose, reuse, adaptive reuse. So um, kind of w- a little bit of everything in that project.
0: That's great. And what do you have there? Do you have hospitality and?
2: There's, um, there's a, a healthy mix. They wanna do high-end retail. They wanna do some hospitality. They're looking for a, um, a hotel partner right now. Um, there's actually gonna be a cultural center that tells some of the story and the, the heritage of the site, um, small museum component. Um, there will be a mosque on site for the neighborhood just to the north of this uh, area which is um, going to be again serviced by the project. And then also there's been an incredible development along the waterfront. This is right along the, the water as I said with the seawall and there's an expressway there so they want to see this project also be a piece of infrastructure so they want to they bridge over the, basically the highway and link up to this linear park that moves along the water and the, the new fisherman's wharf that's there.
0: Great. And who is they? Who's developing this? Was it the existing ownership? Is there a new developer involved?
2: This is a, um, a private developer, but it's a very interesting case over there. Um, Istanbul is, has a wealth of uh, these dilapidated sites that are, that are heritage sites. They're culturally significant. They're, uh, there's amazing ruins, um, old buildings on them. And what they've done, their approach to historic preservation has really been to uh, partner with the uh, private equity and the private engine that's, uh, that's really booming right now in, in Istanbul. So what happens is a private developer comes, sees the use and the developing area around the project. They think they can make the preservation work while at the same time being a uh, smart developer. And as a part of that, a partner comes on board, which is part of the, the government, um, which is the historic and cultural arm of Istanbul so there's basically a committee that's put together for each project it's usually um, some design experts some development experts and people from uh, sort of that are uh, honing in on on the future land use and land plan for for the city and they basically um, figure out a partnership the the government arm becomes kind of a voice a vocal voice that represents the people and the government and the developer gets to do what he wants to do basically by buying an option to Preserve the site while at the same time developing.
0: Yeah, and a lot of developers, even U.S. developers, are looking at global sites and global development now, aren't they?
2: Yeah, and those projects, I have to say, in Istanbul, there's a few online now, extremely successful. Not mm-hmm. only because of sort of what the developers done, but you know, it has this um, this sort of cachet and and equity that you just can't buy. This this uh, continuous history and great story that makes it culturally relevant before you really come out of the gate and make it relevant again.
0: And that's uh, part of the benefits of adaptive reuse, isn't it, that uh, you're gonna get some support, that maybe you'll get some tax breaks or maybe uh, some people being supportive of your project rather than trying to fight it. Right?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think anytime, like when uh, we were working on MoDA, anytime where um, it's viewed that you're kind of upgrading the condition, mm-hmm. uh, if it's the Case in Istanbul where it was sort of a derelict site and kind of uh, existing in ruins, or whether it's even you know here in Midtown where um, you have a project that. from the mid-80s that's just not really that relevant anymore and it's kind of probably considered C C property and and you could take it back to A space um, and bring with it, you know, cultural amenities that make make the surrounding neighborhood more valuable. I think you get a lot of support. We did from uh, Midtown Alliance. They were great through the process.
0: All right, good point. Well, stay with us. We'll have some lessons learned and some tips for adaptive reuse. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit FranceMediaInc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today, we're talking about adaptive reuse projects and some lessons learned and some tips and strategies. My guest is Bruce McAvoy. He's a principal with Perkins and Will. And Bruce, what can you tell us about the entitlement process and, and zoning in these projects? Is some, I know it's, it's crucial. At, how big of an issue is that when you're changing
2: use? Um, Well, with the projects we've discussed so far, um, Moda and the project in Istanbul, Mm -hmm. I think as long as you're moving the right direction as far as uh, value, so if you're sort of upgrading a site, uh, taking industrial sites, say to mixed use or to office or to residential, um, like we're seeing around town, um, you tend to get a lot of support because you're going to see an increase in land values, the project seen as an asset to the city. Um, and then, uh, you know, with any luck, if you're in the right zone too, maybe you get a little bit of help from the city, whether that's um, for tax incentives or um, actual money that's available, bond money. Sometimes, in the case of 1315, uh, there was some TARP funding that basically dropped our our interest in the deal, which uh, again went towards the bottom line and allowed us to do some of the things we we're doing with MODA.
0: Yeah, this is a good point. If you're improving the use of the property in the neighbor's minds and in the politician's mind, it- yeah could be pretty straightforward but uh, I know in some cases where you're taking a mall and you're doing some other use that maybe the neighborhood doesn't think is, is is as great as a mall but you may have a mall that's just defunct it's just dead it's just not gonna be retail anymore and you, yeah. you have to get the get the the neighbors and you have got to get the politicians on board well let's talk about uh, you mentioned some the tax credits you know how crucial all these tax credits and and uh, and what have you done in some of these projects
2: well, I think um, with the tax credits, um, what's important, sometimes you can you can just get stuff out there that um, is good design, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to look at most of these projects on a, on a smaller scale level, you're going to be looking at project infrastructure, meaning building systems. So if you're replacing building systems, if you can beat the baseline, we used to be able to turn to um, the freedom of uh, – or Independent Energy and Freedom Act, which basically you could get tax money back based on how you could make the building perform. Unfortunately, that um, that expired this past year in December and was not renewed, but we expect that to come back. Um, at the sort of macro scale or much larger scale, you can get a lot of tax incentives. I know that um, some of these mega projects we've seen crop up around Atlanta, like uh, the Aerotropolis where Porsche is located just off the runway down at Hartsfield that everybody flies over. Um, I know they've got um, a lot of help from the city. I think by the time that was all said and done, it amounted to about $15 million worth of tax incentives. Um, I'm sure we'll see uh, similar things with the GM plant, as it's been in the news lately about um, that, that deal closing and um, what's going to go on with the master plan for that and the projects that will follow. Hopefully as successful as uh, Porsche and what they've managed to do with the old Ford plant.
0: Yeah, and these neighbors, uh, are usually the neighborhood groups and and things, can be influential uh, with the politicians on what happens in these projects, and they've got to understand that. Look, that there's some tax incentives, but you're going to bring jobs, you're going to bring shoppers, you're going to increase the value uh, of of your property and your business in the area, aren't you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean. When you think about um, sort of holes in the urban fabric, like where Moat is located, mm-hmm. that was kind of um, a little bit of a, a of a desert between uh, sort of the Colony and 14th Street corridor there, mm-hmm. uh, all the way up to 17th, which was the next sort of moment you had retail, um, and I think with uh, coming online across from the High Museum and the Woodruff Art Center. Um, was a natural for Moda and it actually created yet another destination and when I think you can create these sort of magnets or destinations in a city um, that just helps everybody it's going to help property value it helps the traffic and bringing people through and it's going to affect the tax base as well.
0: Yeah yeah that's important and Bruce you've been involved in a lot of these projects what are some of the major obstacles what are some of the challenges with these adaptive U.S. US projects?
2: Well I think um having the right target to begin with, you know, we've talked about uh, several different projects at different scales today. And I think location like in real estate is everything, right? So having, yeah, and timing and having that location, um, and, and having the right location that's ready for redevelopment, um, is key. Um, once you get into the project, I think understanding sort of the basics of what's there because, um, The way I like to think of it, and um, I think some of the savvy people that are doing this redevelopment, they think of the project as a head start, right? So what's the structural system of the project? What are the building systems in place? What's the infrastructure from the city that's feeding the site? Once you start to take all that into account, that's sort of, in a price model, are things that basically are coming off your end and are existing conditions. The places I think you've got to be careful are um, what was that used before, like some of these industrial mm-hmm. sites. You start getting into some of the things like soil contamination or abatement issues just because of construction means, you know, say from the 50s or 40s when some of these things, you know, became, uh, became a reality. Those are the things where um, money can start to evaporate pretty quickly and you probably need to be careful.
0: And speaking of good locations, uh, as an example of a good location, you have the Atlanta Media Campus, right? That's an adaptive reuse project in Gwinnett County on ID5 uh, north of Atlanta, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. We've been um, helping Jim Jacoby and his group take a look at that, do some master plan work with them, and um, they have just been doing um, a great job with uh, sort of the local movie industry. I mean, you name it, they've had the stars through there. And that's um, an example again of taking something that was probably underutilized. Um, OFS was the original tenant who makes fiber, uh, fiber optic. They're still on site. They're still producing fiber, um, and but they're probably um, overserved by that site and overserved by the infrastructure that's there. So um, Jim and um, his group have kind of come in and taken some of that extra space, including an entire. Uh, factory building that was under construction before uh, it was no longer needed and converted that to sound studios, which is um, I'm sure has been wonderful, not only from the standpoint of um, what's going on on that site and the intersection there at Jimmy Carter and 85, but also for the tax base of, uh, of Georgia and, and sort of what we've been trying to do as far as bringing movies to Atlanta.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So if you have an industrial building, just turn it into a movie studio, right? It's that, <laughs> it's that easy, right? Well. St- That's right. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on Adaptive Reuse. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit commercialrealestateshow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Remember, if you're listening to the show on one of the radio stations around the country, at the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com, we're going to have some images and things of some of the projects we're talking about. And also, you can catch this show on uh, video or the audio podcast at any time you like. Just visit creshow.com. Today, we're talking about adaptive reuse projects, and my guest is Bruce McAvoy with Perkins & Will. And... Bruce, can you, this is our last segment of the show, can you leave us with some tips and uh, for their listeners and viewers about uh, adaptive reuse if they're involved in a project?
2: Yeah, I think, um, again, the, the right mindset going mm-hmm. into the project, when you think of it financially, um, you're coming out ahead by doing this, but that being said, you need to be prepared for the, uh, for the unexpected. So, mm-hmm. you know, a healthy, healthy contingent, also the uh, due diligence period, mm-hmm. you know, when you're starting to look at these properties. Um, it would be great to have somebody who's, um, who's also probably more, um, uh, more versed than, say, just your design team. So an expanded design team that includes maybe a contractor or your partner going forward that can help you with some of that due diligence. A lot of times there's uh, some subtle forensics that can be done on a project, and it'll kind of let you know what you might be facing, whether that has to do with the structural system of the building, which might have to be upgraded, might be fine. Um, The mechanical systems and the building systems uh, that are present, are those in good condition? Do you have to kind of gut the project to start? Um, And then, you know, sort of the idea of is there other issues, contaminants, um, is there asbestos on site? You know, some of these old industrial projects uh, might date back to, you know, the forties and fifties by the time you really get to the, the base layer of construction.
0: And there's also some things to think about, too, in the, the demolition or the removal of the improvements. But I like what, what uh, your architects call it, deconstruction.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think deconstruction is another thing that you can start to look at when you get into the project. If, if, if you have, a say, a project where it looks like people got up at 5 o'clock one day and just left, there's a lot of embodied value in that project before you get started. Mm-hmm. If you can deconstruct it, divert uh, divert basically um, valuable Things in the project before you start that can either go to a place like the Lifecycle Building Center. It could go to uh, places in need that are nonprofits. Um, I know when we did thirteen fifteen, um, that was a healthy component that we were able to basically donate, which became part of a tax strategy again. So, deconstructing the project in a in a manner where you can capture the value. Um, can add to your bottom line and can add to the the actual formula for the whole project
0: good point point. and there's also some brand value in these types of projects isn't it you're taking a dilapidated building that maybe is an eyesore that's not uh, r- r- not much tax revenue there and you're creating something so your yeah. tenants and end users can benefit right
2: yeah i think um it's hitting on all levels too you're mm-hmm. exactly right so mm-hmm. everything from sort of the developer side where where the developers are telling a story and their commitment to the environment uh, maybe they've, of taking something that was underutilized, maybe it wasn't um, you know, ecologically sensitive and they, they're changing that. We're seeing it at the corporate level with some of our, um, our, our world clientele that basically they're telling a story and, and an ideology of what that company's about. Their real estate needs to match that story. So projects like this become very attractive. Um, when you go even further down to say the tenant level, you know, we've all seen the millennials come into the, the, the workplace and they have a um, they have a very set view of the world, and they, and they want to um, have an impact on the world, and and they're they're uh, cause driven. So when you can tell a story about your space and what it is, it's going to be more attractive to those startup companies and some of those younger companies versus say, Class A office space that's fresh out of the ground somewhere else.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Yeah.
2: Thanks, Michael. We appreciate great.
0: you being here in Studio One. And thanks for joining us uh, on video or on the radio around the country. And uh, do make sure you visit the Commercial Real Estate Show website and catch this uh, video so you can see some images of these properties we're talking about. Be sure to catch future shows of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, and be sure to join us next week. We'll talk about health care and healthcare care real estate. Thanks for joining us today. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Florida International University. Earn your Commercial Real Estate Master's Degree in as little as 10 months. Visit FIUonline.com. And Bull Realty Commercial Brokers, a great place to do business. Visit BullRealty.com and France Media Publications and Conferences. For exposure to the world of commercial real estate, visit francemediainc.com.